want to thank those of you who are such big givers. You know, we got the best givers, I believe, of any ministry. Many of you may not know this about our ministry, but we, we say that we encourage people to give. We have a suggested donation for things, but you know, we have over 50% of the people who contact us don't give a penny and we go ahead and send them the materials anyway. We couldn't do that if it wasn't for our partners. Our partners give abundantly. I was talking to a major ministry, one of the main ministries that you would know who I was talking about. And they were kind of on my case about giving tapes away. Like you're the guy that gives his tapes away. And they couldn't believe it. And anyway, we just got to talking and they said, so what do you average per person that writes in? And I told them and man, their eyes got big. And you know what? Ever since then, they've been giving things away. <laughs> it works. Amen. <laughs> so, uh, Praise God. I tell you, I appreciate our partners because our partners are really just special. We don't push and pull for money the way some people do. And praise God, God supplies our needs supernaturally. It's awesome. Let's turn back over to Colossians chapter two, verse eight. This is where I started teaching from last night. And this is the apostle Paul speaking to the people in Colossae. They had never met him personally And because of that, he was concerned about whether they got all of the truth, whether everything that they needed to be um, established in the Lord was presented to them. And so here's part of what he said in Colossians chapter two, verse eight, he says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Boy, that is pregnant with a lot of meaning right here. That is powerful. And I've been focusing on this word philosophy. Most people think philosophy is something reserved for Eastern philosophers, Plato, Aristotle. But last night, I spent the whole night trying to establish that all of us have philosophies. Your your attitude, your worldview, your paradigm, The filter through which you look at the world is your philosophy and it influences everything. And this is why you can take people and expose them to identical circumstances or identical information and you will have totally different responses from people because people think differently. I use the example of a pessimist and an optimist. You can expose them to identical situations. The pessimist will see the negative side. The optimist will see a positive way to use that thing for good. It's a paradigm. It's a philosophy. And so this, is, this determines everything. If you want to change people, you've got to change their philosophy, not individual thoughts, but you got to knit these thoughts together so that it changes their outlook, their whole way of looking at things. That is really important. I could go back and preach that message last night all over again because people don't understand this. They pray and ask God for change and not, they never even try and approach the way that they think. But your life is going the direction of your dominant thought If you are struggling in an area, you're struggling in your thought life. And I use scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 to verify that. So really the way to change isn't just through prayer or going and letting somebody wave their hand over you. It's through changing the way you think. Proverbs 23, 7, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you begin to think in your heart, not in your head, but in your heart on a heart level, your deep thought 
If you begin to think correctly, your life will change for the better. That is the way that the Bible teaches change. I'm teaching on television right now, a series entitled Effortless Change. And that would go along perfectly with everything I've been teaching. But uh, I want to go a little beyond that and start sharing about what are some of the Christian philosophies? What are some of the Christian ways of viewing things? And again, let me just state this again. I said it last night, but most of us formed our philosophy before we got born again. We had attitudes established in us, ways of looking at things that were imparted unto us before we got born again. And then when you get born again, we think differently about heaven, but many people have never taken the word of God and let it change the way they think about all of these natural things. They still have attitudes that were established before you got born again. And so we need to go back and change this. So let's turn over to Genesis chapter three. And I want to show you the very first way that Satan came against Adam and Eve and tempted them. And the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was speaking and he said, I fear lest as the serpent beguiled Eve through subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so there is a parallel here. Satan doesn't have new tricks. He just comes with the same stuff, puts a different wrapper, a different bow on it. But it says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. That means it's, a, it's the same for all of us. You know, sometimes people think, well, we here in the United States have problems that nobody else has. That is not true. The Bible teaches it's the exact same thing. It's just, it may have a different wrapper, a different bow, but Satan uses the same things. We are still being tempted in the same way that he came against Adam and Eve in the very beginning. So let's look back in Genesis chapter three and look at the temptation of Adam and Eve. And you can see that these exact same things came against us. You know, another verse that goes along with this is first John chapter two. And I believe it's, I'm not sure which verse, but it's around verse 10, 15, someplace. Anyway, I promise you it's there. And it says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of God. And it basically summarizes the whole temptation up into three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus had three temptations. You can see those three things right here. There's only three areas. You know, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. Was Jesus ever tempted with being stuck in traffic and getting impatient? And He didn't have the exact same thing, but it was, if you just peel back the layers, he was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These three areas are what he was tempted in. It's what Adam and Eve were tempted in. We all have the same temptations and we can learn by seeing how Satan came against Adam and Eve. So here in Genesis chapter three, this is where the serpent came against Eve. And it says in verse one, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now there is a lot in this verse. I've actually taught for about four or five hours on this one verse. There's a lot of stuff right here. First of all, let me just point this out. I'm not going to stay here, but I've got an entire book entitled The Authority of the Believer that is based on, a lot on these things. Satan didn't come 
and use the biggest animal or the, the meanest animal, the most ferocious animal. He didn't take a tiger or a lion and come and threaten to kill them if they didn't eat of the thing. He didn't use intimidation or force. He used the most subtle animal that God had created. That word subtle means sly, cunning, crafty, deceptive. Why didn't Satan use a mammoth to put his foot on Eve's head and say, eat this fruit or I'll squash you? Why didn't he use intimidation? See, again, here's philosophy. This is a way of thinking. Most people think I can't help it. The devil makes me do this. Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. And people come out and they just don't feel like they have any authority over the devil. That is a lie. Satan in the very beginning and still today has no power to make any person do anything. He can't force you. There isn't anything that forces you to sin. Satan comes and deceives you and he has to get inside of your head and get you to thinking wrong before you can sin. Satan can't do anything without your consent and cooperation. And I know some of you are thinking, man, that's not true. You just don't understand. See, because you believe Satan is stronger than you and that he has superior power and authority to you. That's one of the reasons that you give in. You just give token resistance. And when the temptation continues, after all, you're only human and you just give in and do it. That's a wrong philosophy. It's a wrong way of thinking. If you understood that you're the one with power, Satan can't do anything without you. This is the reason demons cried out and said, let us enter into the pigs. Because you know what? A pig has more authority than a demon. Anything with a physical body, an ant, a slug, a piece of slime has more authority than the devil. He has to have some human or physical body to do anything in this earth. Satan can't do anything without a physical human body or an animal body cooperating with it. Satan has zero power and authority. And this is the reason he didn't come in his pitchfork and horns and stuff like that and tempt Adam and Eve. He came through an animal. He chose the most cunning, sly animal, the one that was the most deceptive because he had no power to force Adam and Eve to do anything. Man, that is huge. That is huge. You ought to get that teaching on authority of the believer if you don't understand what I've said. And notice, here's the very first thing that Satan did through this serpent. It says in the middle of this verse, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You know what this is? This is the devil challenging the word of God. It wasn't a written Bible like what we have. What we have is so much better. But they had a word from God. Over there in the second chapter, I believe it's verse 16, the Lord spoke to him and says, you shall eat of all of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it lest you die. God told them that. That was his word. That was his command unto them. And the very first thing that Satan did was come against the word of God and try and get them to doubt the accuracy of the word of God. And I can guarantee you, Satan cannot get you into sin, into failure, into sickness, into poverty, into depression, into any form of error without you doubting the Word of God. 
If all you did was believe the word of God and that just ended any conversation with the devil right there, the moment the devil comes and says, has God really said, you said, yes, he really has said, period. Did you know if that would have been the Eve's response, it would have been over with. But they got into a dialogue with a talking snake about whether or not God really said what he said. And you know, I am not here to criticize you. I appreciate you coming out on a Friday morning. You are not the nod to God Sunday crowd. You're the fanatics. And uh, so I'm not here to criticize you, but I could guarantee if, if this is a typical group, there is a large number of people sitting right here in this room that you believe that the Bible is God's word in a vague way, but you wouldn't believe it to the point that you defend it in every detail. You believe it contains the word of God, but you have let the world give you a philosophy that the Bible is inaccurate. It's not scientific. I'm not asking you to raise your hand on this, (laughs) but I guarantee you there's a slew of people sitting right here that believe evolution, which the Bible completely is against evolution. And some of you think, oh no, there's theistic evolution There are people that call themselves theistic evolutionists and stuff, but it is incompatible with the Bible. It is totally incompatible. I may teach on that a little bit before this week out, week is over. But anyway, see, there's people that believe, well, I believe it's the Bible and it's the word of God, but you don't believe in the accuracy of it. You think it's been mistranslated and stuff. Did you know that Jesus didn't have the original copy when he quoted from scripture? Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. You can go back to his quotations and read it in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of Old Testament scripture. And Jesus quoted from a translation and called it the infallible word of God. And yet there's a lot of people that just believe that the Bible has a vague representation of God's word, but it's not completely accurate. You know, I believe that one of the reasons Satan came to Eve instead of to Adam was because of this very thing. You know, it says in verse six that she took of the fruit and ate and gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam was standing there the whole time. Why didn't Satan approach Adam? and tempt him. I've heard, I was raised in a denomination that taught that women are just supposed to be subject to men, that women are more susceptible to deception than men and stuff. And they, they just use this as a proof text that a woman needs a covering that, uh, all of these kind of things. I believe it's much simpler than that. The reason Satan came to the woman is because God gave the command not to eat of the fruit to Adam before Eve was created. Eve wasn't there. She never heard God say this. She got that information secondhand. And if you get information from somebody else, then there is always the possibility that maybe they didn't completely represent it. Maybe it wasn't uh, spoken completely. Have you ever played this game that we used to call it gossip? And you'd take a group of people like, you know, 10 or 15 people here and you'd start over here with Jim and you'd have him whisper a phrase, one sentence. He couldn't repeat it, but he would whisper it to Shirley and then they'd pass it on to Don and Larry and go on. Now, and I can guarantee you out of 10 people, 
you, it would be impossible to come up at the last person with the exact same phrase because it would be misunderstood, misquoted, misrepresented, and it'll never come out the same as it started. Any of you ever do that? A few of you. Boy, you up here in New England are different than in Texas. I can guarantee you that that's the way it is. And so anyway, people just know that when somebody repeats something to you, maybe they've added something to it. Maybe they subtracted something from it. Maybe it's not a hundred percent the way that it was spoken. And so Eve was more susceptible to doubt because it wasn't firsthand information to her. And you know what? Likewise, people who have never taken the word of God and never made it personal have never taken it and said, God, would you speak to me? And once the Lord speaks to you through scripture, I guarantee you, it is on a whole different level than you just sitting here and saying, well, Andrew Womack said, I heard him say, but man, you go take the scriptures that I'm talking about. You study and you pray and you let God speak these things to you. And once God spoke that scripture to you, it's on a whole different level than just saying, well, this minister said this, this person said that. And this sad to say, most Christians have not taken the word of God and let the Holy Spirit speak it directly to them. You know, when I started in ministry, long story, I'll make it very short, but I was having success, but only for a week or so. And then I'd get to where I'd say the exact same things and people just, it wouldn't touch people. It wouldn't change people. People wouldn't be healed. And I'd have to run back and get fed up and, and get feet, uh, you know, get the word given to me again through other people. And then I'd go back and I'd be on fire. And for a week or two, I'd see people's lives change. And this happened so often that I began to anticipate it. I knew it was going to happen. I knew that I could only last a week or two until I'd have to go get filled up again with the word of God. And finally, the Lord spoke to me through the parable in Mark chapter four about the sower sowing the seed. And he told me, you don't have root in yourself. You're quoting somebody else. You're preaching their revelation. It's not your revelation. And he says, you haven't made it personal. And when the Lord showed that to Jamie and me, We made a decision and I guarantee you, we changed. And you will very seldom hear me quote another person. And it's not because I don't receive from other people, but when I hear something from another person, I'll go before the Lord and I'll pray about it until that becomes mine. God will speak it to me. You don't hear me quote a lot of other people, even though I do get things from other people because I'll meditate on it until it becomes mine. And then I'll say, God told me. That's the way you've got to be with the word of God. And I believe that that's specifically the reason that Satan came to Eve first is because she had gotten this second hand. And so she was more susceptible to doubt. And she began to discuss it. And she says, we can eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did you know that that's not what the Lord said? The Lord didn't say anything about touching the tree. She added to it. She began to expand on it. There's a great truth in that, but I'm not going to take time this morning to expound on that. But I tell you, that happens today. People are expounding on and adding to the word of God and it'll get you in trouble every time. You, first of all, when the devil comes to you and starts making you try to doubt the authority of the word of God, anything that comes against the word of God, you need to reject it right then. You don't need to discuss it. You don't need to enter into debate about this. 
And brothers and sisters, this is a Christian philosophy that every Christian should have. And that is that God's word is infallible. It is complete. It is accurate in every detail. And yet the secular world makes fun of the word of God. I heard a talk show one time and they were discussing some moral issue and some Christian called in and says, well, the Bible says, and the guy stopped him right there and says, Hey, we're just dealing in reality. We aren't dealing in faith stuff, man. It made me mad. Like the Bible is reality. And there's people that say, but you know, the Bible isn't accurate, man. The Bible is more accurate than your science that you're being taught. I could get way off the subject, but you know, there's people that have come up and said, well, the Bible says that there were these old, uh, Hittites and all of these people groups that there isn't any evidence in history about and stuff. And back 50, 60 years ago, people used to use that as a thing to show that the Bible isn't accurate. Did you know that new archeology span has discovered nearly every single people group that the Bible talked about that they said didn't exist? There is now proof that it happened. And the Bible was more accurate than our modern day science and all of these kind of things. The Bible has never been proven wrong in any area. The Bible talks about God sitting on the circle of the earth. If people would have believed what the Bible said, they never would have gotten into this thing about the earth being flat and you falling off the end of the earth. The Bible talks about those kind of things. The Bible talks about all of this stuff. It is more accurate scientifically than any of our science today. And when it comes to evolution and stuff like this, people think, but it's proven that, you know, the earth is hundreds of millions of years old. It is not proven. If you can stick with me sometime before the end of this deal, I'm going to show you a lot of stuff on evolution. I just did some programs and interviewed some scientists and man, the proof of a young earth is just overwhelming. There are thousands, tens of thousands of scientists who have rejected evolution. Evolution is a crock. Things being around for hundreds of millions of years is impossible. It can't happen. Some of you, well, how could you say that? Because the Bible says it. Genesis chapter one, I think there's four times the Lord said he created things and he says, be fruitful and multiply and bring forth after your own kind. Grass produces grass, trees produce trees, fish produce fish, people produce people, apes produce apes. But there, it is a law of God that everything reproduces after its own kind. And yet evolution is built upon the premise that everything goes from in, uh, you know, from this slime to this incredible complex and you can change a tadpole into a man. (laughs) It's unobservable. It's against the word of God. Everything only produces after its own kind. You could bring, breed horses and cows and dogs, and you can make big dogs and short dogs and ugly dogs and everything else, but there's still a dog. You cannot breed a dog to be a cow. It can't happen. And evolution is built upon all of this kind of stuff. Evolution and the Bible are incompatible. There is no way to reconcile the two. You can't bridge the gap. It is a huge chasm between the two. 
And you know what? Because it is being said so strongly, like I could give you example after example after example of people who are scientists, who have credentials and all of these things. And because they even mention intelligent design, which isn't the same as creation, but just intelligent design that some alien or some foreign um, creature created all of this because they even give the possibility that there was some intelligence used in this. They are expelled from universities. They're blackballed. They have their credentials pulled. A guy from Baylor University, which is a Christian university, was expelled and kicked out because he entertained the thought that there could be a creator instead of evolution. Christian universities have bought into this. It is not an established fact. But I'm saying this. See, we have all of these things in our society today that come against the integrity of the word of God and make you think that there's all of these errors in it. I'm sure that you've probably heard people say, well, the Bible's mistranslated and you know this is wrong. That's not true. I believe God has preserved this. Now, I will admit this. I do believe that there are some translations that were inspired by the devil. I really do. They take out the virgin birth. They take out a lot of things. I'm not, you know, I'm, if you want to read whatever translation, if you read it and study it and just delve into it, go for it. Amen. I'm not against any of those translations. It would be better to be in some translation than to be in no translation. So I'm not going to pick and choose and tell you which translation is the only one and, and those kind of things. I'm not like that. But I am saying that there's one of the most popular translations, probably the most popular translation today that I found six verses that they just took out of the Bible. They didn't like them. You're wondering, is that mine? <laughs> well, go look for Matthew 17, 21. And if it's not in your Bible, you ought to throw that thing in the trash. <laughs> is it in your Bible? Okay. All right. But uh, there's, there's translations that just leave scriptures out. Man, that's wrong. But let me say that I believe that God has preserved the translation even. Scripture will comment on scripture. For instance, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not kill. Jesus quoted this over in Matthew. I'd have to look up the exact reference, but when he was asked about which is the greatest commandment, I think it's in Matthew chapter 21. He says, you know, the commandments thou shalt do no murder. And so Jesus quoted from Exodus chapter 20. And he said, thou shalt do no murder. Exodus chapter 20 says that thou shalt not kill. So which is it? And people will often say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. But I believe here's the proper way to look at that. The word kill or the word murder by itself does not convey the proper meaning of what God was trying to say. Languages are limited and sometimes you have to say things multiple ways in order to be able to get the point across. If all you had was thou shalt not kill, then that would mean that you couldn't defend yourself. In battle, self-defense would be outlawed. That would mean that capital punishment would be over. That would mean that you couldn't kill an animal. That would mean all kinds of things if you just say, thou shalt not kill. But when you say, thou shalt not murder, that changes things because murder is not 
you know, it's not murder if you are in self-defense, if somebody is trying to kill you and you just defend yourself. If you accidentally kill a person, that's not murder. Murder is killing a person with malice, a forethought, intent. You know what you're doing. And so there's a difference between those two. But murder also is not exactly right. Because if you said murder, if thou shalt not murder was the only restriction you had, well, then that would uh, absolve a person of negligent homicide. And yet the Bible teaches in other places. Like for instance, if you have a roof and if you don't put a railing around your roof and if a person falls over, you get put to death because you didn't take some precautions for that person. You didn't push the person. It wasn't murder, but it would be negligent homicide. And the Bible holds you accountable for that. So if you put all of these things together, I believe it's actually, uh, it's better to have in one place, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not murder. They do not contradict each other, but you look at them together and you get a broader understanding of what the Lord is trying to say than if you'd have used either one of those words by themselves. Amen. So the Bible doesn't contradict itself. The Bible is accurate in every detail. A few of you aren't sure of that. (laughs) Let me just use some scriptures here. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I believe this is. Second Timothy chapter three and in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, the actual word there in the Greek is talking about all scripture is God breathed. And you put this together with, look over in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy man of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit moved upon people and this Bible is God inspired. This is not like any other book. This is a God breathed, God inspired word. If you ever doubt that, then just like Eve, you are going to enter into sin. If you ever get to where you say, well, this is just outdated and I can't live my life by something that was written thousands of years ago. It was written thousands of years ago, but it was written as people were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. This is God's revelation to us. I remember, I think it was Bill Clinton, the president who, uh, you know, claimed to be a Christian. And yet so many of his actions were non-Christian. And he was interviewed and they asked him a question about how do you reconcile your stance on abortion and on homosexuality and stuff like this with the Bible? And he, this was his quote. He says, well, the Bible, I believe is the word of God, but it was written thousands of years ago. It's not applicable to us today, the way that it was to them. In other words, he believed that there might've had some God inspiration in it, but it wasn't relevant to us today. And we had to update it based on our culture. 
There's people sitting right here in this room that feel that exact same way. And I guarantee you, if that's your philosophy, then you are not going to base the rest of your philosophy, all of your views and stuff on what the Bible says. You're going to think that it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't have answers for us today. The Bible has an answer for whatever your situation is today. This is inspired by God. It is God breathed and you have to make that. If Eve would have just said, look, God said, that's it. End of discussion. They wouldn't have ever have eaten of that fruit. We wouldn't have gone into this situation. And that's exactly the way you've got to get to where here's what the word of God says. It is not up for discussion. And you have people say, but you know, here's what I believe in here. And it doesn't matter what anything else is. Whatever the word of God says is absolute truth. Amen. 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 There's not a lot of people that have that kind of an attitude towards the word of God. And I'm telling you, I'm saying that if you don't have that type of a commitment and trust in the word of God, then you are going to come up with the wrong philosophy, which ultimately your life will go the direction of your dominant philosophy, your dominant way of thinking. So you've got to go back and establish it on the word of God. And I could just go on and on. If you've been watching my program on television this week, I use Mark, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus spoke to John the Baptist and gave him scripture when he was in terrible doubt. I mean, the worst crisis of his life. And instead of giving him a hug, instead of giving him a compliment, instead of giving him an emotional response, he says, what does the word say? And he referred John back to the word. And then after John's disciples left, he says, John the Baptist is the greatest person that has ever been born in the history of the world. He's greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than anybody. Why didn't he say those complimentary things? That's what most of us would have wanted was a little hug, a little encouragement. But Jesus gave John the word because that is the greatest way of removing doubt and encouraging you. Most people are looking for something other than the word. I have people come to me all the time with their Bible under their arms. Says, would you please pray for me and just ask God to speak a word to me? And I say, you got millions of them right here. But oh, I need God to speak something to me. No, he's already spoken this right here. The only problem is you haven't made it real to you. People will talk about the difference between a rhema word and a logos word. And I agree that there is a foundational truth that I agree with that principle. But people will say, but it's just not real to me. I know that God spoke it, but until it becomes real to me, uh, you know, it just doesn't mean anything. But it's, and it is true that the word has to come alive. I've already talked about that here today. But you know what? It's not up to God whether this word becomes real to you. It's up to you. Every word in here is for you, but you have to take it and you have to get before God and open up your heart and say, Lord, speak to me and reveal this to me. It's up to you whether the word becomes rhema instead of logos. That is not an excuse for you to say, well, I know it's in there, but you know what? God just hadn't spoken that to me. It's because you hadn't been listening. You need to make this word come alive to you. You can do it. The Holy Spirit is for it. But you've got to believe in the accuracy of the word of God. And I could go on and on. Let me share some things with you that are not in my heart. I got scripture in my heart, but I have to look at my computer to get charts. But here are some Here's two things I want to point out that help 
illustrate the accuracy of the Bible. A document, these old documents, it's agreed by most scholars and stuff that you can tell the accuracy of of the documents that we have by how many copies of that document there are and how close to the original writing of those documents these copies were made. And so here are some comparisons for you. Have you got that chart? We got some new folks back here. I don't know if we got this chart or not, but anyway, I've got a chart. Maybe they'll put it up here, but if not, I'll go ahead and explain this to you. Plato wrote in 427 through 347 BC and the earliest copies of his writing are 900 AD. That means that there's a lapse of 1200 years between when Plato wrote and the copies of his writings that we have. And there's a total of seven copies worldwide. So it's a huge span of time in between when he wrote and when the first copies were made. And we only have seven of those copies. You can go on down to Herodias Caesar. He wrote in 58 through 50 BC and the earliest copies of his stuff is 900 AD. 900 years and there's only 10 copies of his writing. Aristotle wrote in 384 BC and the earliest copies of his writing are 1100 AD. 1400 years and there's only 49 of those copies. So that's, this means that you know the chances for error, the accuracy of these copies are questionable. Homer's Iliad is the most popular ancient manuscript. It was written 900 BC and the earliest copy is 400 BC. So there's 500 years left and there's 643 copies of uh, Homer's Iliad. But when you come to the Greek New Testament, it was written in 550 to 100 AD. The earliest copies are 300 AD and some a little bit earlier. That means 150 years difference. And we have 5,686 copies of the Greek New Testament. And if you include the other copies that were made in other languages, there's over 9,000 copies in other languages, bringing that total number to over 14,000 copies that are less than 200 years from the original. The comparison between the Bible and any other ancient document that we have, it is like 1,000, uh, 10,000 times more manuscripts, more documentation. And when you compare all of these copies, uh, what it boils down to is they have taken all of the copies, all of the apparent contradictions or errors between all of the copies and it amounts to that the Bible is guaranteed by science, by these comparisons, to be 95.6% accurate. And the, that small percentage of differences are the different spellings of a word. Which, you know, in the King James, they spell music, M-U-S-I-C-K. That didn't change the wording of anything, it's, but they would consider that an error. And that's what they're talking about. There is not any substantial difference. Another thing that really confirms this, these earliest copies of the New Testament were around 300 AD, but then in 1950 something, I forget the exact date, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden around the Dead Sea. They were written, um, I forget the exact time, but they were discovered in 56. I think they were written just about the time that the New Testament was written and they found a complete copy of Isaiah's book. They call it the great Isaiah scroll. 
And that scroll, they compared that with their copies, which were a thousand years later than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And over a thousand years, you would expect if this was just a human book and thousands and thousands of people copied it out, that there would be all of these differences. And yet when they compared these manuscripts that were separated by thousands of years, there was 38 differences in the entire book of Isaiah and it amounted to the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. No substance difference at all. It is absolutely impossible that over a thousand years, a document couldn't change. There was no substantive change in any word. None at all. And this just can't happen outside of God divinely preserving this translation. The Bible is not like any other book. It isn't a human book that people just writing their opinions about God. It is God breathed. God spoke through people. And this ought to be your foundational Christian philosophy. And if you, if you waver on this philosophy and if you think that the Bible is just a vague representation, it just has a little bit of truth in it, but you can't trust it, you can't base your life on it, I guarantee you, you are an accident waiting to happen. The Bible is God-breathed. It is accurate. And I could go on and on with these statistics and give you a lot of things. Here's, a, here's another truth that really ministered to me. After I had my miraculous encounter with the Lord in 1968. I just fell in love with the Lord. Man, I started witnessing to anything and everything that moved and sad to say, but not everybody was thrilled with the Lord the way I was. And I got criticized and I got attacked. And one of the attacks that came against me is you're quoting scripture and you can't trust scripture. And did you know I was 18 at the time I was raised in a Christian home. I was born again when I was eight years old and I just accepted that the Bible was accurate because that's what I was told. And I had never personally um, challenged that or thought about it. And so when people begin to attack me and they begin to start saying that the word of God isn't accurate and you can't base your life on that, even after this miraculous encounter with the Lord, there was about a week's period of time that I went through doubt about how do I know that the word of God is true? How do I know that what I'm saying is accurate? And I began to evaluate that. And it was the most miserable week of my entire life because I began to doubt about everything. And anyway, many things happened, but here is the number one thing that convinced me that the Bible was accurate. I began to study prophecy. And there are thousands of prophecies in the Bible, but just concerning Jesus, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus and what would happen with him and how those things would come to pass. If you'll indulge me just a second, it may take a second for me here to find it on my computer. But um, I want to give you just a few of these prophecies, make some of these comparisons. Um, hopefully I can find, here it is. Thank you, Jesus. Let me just mention a couple of prophecies. This, there's 300, like I said, just about Jesus, but it was prophesied in Psalm 1610 that he would not see corruption, talking about that his body wouldn't decay. 
And then in Acts 2, 27 through 31, that was quoted by Peter and uh, it came to pass. Jesus was raised from the dead and his body didn't see corruption. Psalms 22, 16, his hands and his feet would be pierced. Did you know that this was hundreds of years before the Romans invented crucifixion? And yet it was prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That came to pass exactly the way it was prophesied. Psalms 22, 18, they would uh, cast lots for his clothing. Think about how specific this prophecy is. They actually took his clothes and they tore his clothes into pieces. But when they got to the robe he was wearing, it was a special robe because it was seamless. It did it was woven throughout. It didn't have a seam anywhere in it. And so it was like an expensive robe. And because of that, instead of tearing it into pieces, they cast lots for it exactly the way it was prophesied like 500 years in advance. Think about how detailed that prophecy was and how it came to pass. It was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that he would make his uh, bed with the rich and with the ungodly in his death. Isaiah chapter 53. How could something, how could you ever get the ungodly and the rich together and the Messiah is going to make his bed with them? It was because he was crucified between two thieves, but a rich man put him in his tomb. It came to pass just exactly the way it was prophesied. And on and on and on, all of these prophecies go. Uh, None of his bones would be broken. That was prophesied and that came to pass. He would be betrayed by a close friend. Think about that. In the first place, how in the world did these people, hundreds of years before, how did they reconcile God, the Messiah coming and being betrayed? by one of his creations. You know, if we weren't looking at things with history, knowing what happened, nobody would believe that God would allow himself to let any man betray him. And yet this was prophesied. It was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter seven, that he would be born of a virgin. Man, I am glad that I wasn't Isaiah. Imagine what this would be like if there had never been a virgin. There's only been one virgin birth. And we now talk about it and it's kind of old hat and people don't think about it. But just think what it had been like hundreds of years before there was ever a virgin birth to stand up and say, a virgin is going to have a child. You'd have been laughed to scorn. And yet it came to pass exactly the way it was prophesied. The prophecies concerning Jesus, their accuracy in being fulfilled are just unbelievable. As a matter of fact, here's another thing I got to look at to be able to uh, use this. A mathematician calculated the probability of just eight, eight of the prophecies concerning Jesus coming to pass. Like I said, there's over 300 and every one was fulfilled perfectly. But if only eight of the prophecies. And here are the specific prophecies that he calculated. Um, Let me read them here. That he would have a prophet go before him and prepare his way. That was John the Baptist. That he would be a ruler who entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be betrayed by friends. That betrayal would result in the, in the wounding of his hands, that he would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver, that those 30 pieces of silver would later be thrown on the temple floor and used to buy a potter's field. And when on trial for his life, 
he would make no defense and he would be one of the few people in history that was killed by crucifixion. Those are the eight prophecies. And a mathematician calculated the chances of this happening and here's what they are. One in 100 quadrillion chances. 100 quadrillion. I've had that. I've I've been told what that means, but I forget. It's like 21 zeros. Do we happen to have that little illustration about the dollar bill? Do we have that? Yes or no? No. Oh, it's awesome. We, we did this for my television and put it together, but I don't have it available. But anyway, here's the deal. One in 100 quadrillion is the same as if you had 100 quadrillion dollar bills would be 70 stacks of dollar bills from the earth to the sun. That's how many dollar bills. And to the sun is, I don't know, millions of miles. And if you had 70 stacks of dollar bills stretching from the earth to the sun, and if somehow or another you could put a ladder up and move along those columns any way you wanted to, and if you went and picked out the dollar bill, one dollar bill out of 100 quadrillion that had an X on it, your chances of finding that dollar bill the first time are the same as Jesus fulfilling eight of the 300 something prophecies. It's astronomical. You know, I was, uh, I took math in college and anything to, I forget the exact number now, but it was, it was a small number. Anything to the 10 to the 10th or 12th power somewhere around there is statistically impossible. It can't happen. And this is one to the 10 to the quadrillionth power. It is just absolutely phenomenally impossible that any of this stuff could happen. So for those of you that the Bible isn't proof enough and you have to have something natural, look at all of the manuscripts and how many copies they are and they differ virtually none at all. Nothing except little dotting of an I or crossing of a T, a comma or something like that. No substantial difference between all of this stuff. That has not happened with any other manuscript in history and yet it's happened with the Bible. You look at prophecy and this is the thing that sold me. Prophecy is fulfilled so exactly that how in the world could anybody think this is a book written by men only? Even though men wrote it, it was God breathed. It was God inspired. Cyrus was prophesied 400 years, I think it was, before he was born that there would be a king of Persia called Cyrus who would issue a decree and send the Israelites back to rebuild the temple. 400 years before he was born, it called his name and he did it exactly the way that the Bible prophesied and it came to pass. 300 years before... um, Man, what was this king's name? Josiah. Before King Josiah was born, it was prophesied that the northern 10 tribes of Israel went into apostasy and Jeroboam, the king, was afraid that they would go back to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. So he decided to form his own temple and ordain his own priest and have his own sacrifice. And as they were having these sacrifices on this brazen altar, a prophet came 
And he said, he prophesied to the altar. He talked to the altar and he said, Oh, altar, Oh, altar. This is in first Kings, I think chapter 13. And he said, Oh, altar, altar. And he said, the, the, because you've done this thing, the bones of these priests that have burnt this offering on this sacrifice, that God is going to burn your bones on this exact altar. There is a king that will rise up named Josiah by name, and he will burn your bones on this altar. And as a sign to you, this altar is going to be broken. And immediately the altar broke in two and all of the ashes fell out on the ground. And Jeroboam, the king got mad and stuck out his arm and he says, seize that man. And when he stuck his arm out, it got stuck in place. He couldn't pull it back. And all of a sudden the fear of God hit him and he cried out and asked that man of God to pray for him. And so the man of God prayed for him. And it was like 300 years later, after all of this was over, that Josiah, he was the king of Judah, not the king of Israel. But in his zeal, Israel had already been taken into captivity and he went up into the northern 10 kingdoms up there and he was zealous and he was tearing down all of the altars to Baal and all of these things. And he came to this brazen altar that had been broken in two. And he said, what is this? And he said, this is where Jeroboam started this pagan idolatry and worship. And he, and he remembered the prophecy and he went and dug up the bones of those people and burnt them on that very deal. 300 years after it came to pass exactly the way that God said. And on and on and on and on you could go. It's impossible for those things to happen in the natural. There is no other book that compares with the Bible. You need to have a Christian philosophy that if whether your little peanut brain has figured it out or not, God's word is accurate, not your thinking. And if somebody tells you all the Bible is outdated and stuff, they don't know what they're talking about. It has been proven over and over and over. You know, Voltaire, the guy who basically led the French Enlightenment and started a humanistic philosophy that is prevalent in our society today. Voltaire was going to stamp out the Bible. He, he prophesied, he didn't call it a prophecy, but he said within 100 years, he would completely eradicate the Bible, that it was just foolishness and that it, that it would cease to exist, that it wouldn't even be in people's memory. And 100 years from the date of his birth in his house, they printed Bibles on a printing press and stacked them in his house on the 100th anniversary of his birth. Voltaire's gone, but not the Bible. It has been assailed, it has been attacked, and it has stood like no other book. It is not a human book. This is God speaking to you. You know, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I I spoke in tongues. It took me a while to speak in tongues because I was a Baptist and I was told that this was of the devil. And so I had fear about it and I wanted it and I believed in speaking in tongues, but all of the stuff that I'd been told hindered me. So it took a while. But the first thing that happened, the thing that happened, I mean, immediately when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the word of God just came alive to me. I couldn't open the Bible without hearing God just scream at me. I couldn't read one verse without getting so excited that I just wanted to run. I mean, God was talking to me through that book. 
Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. But there are some of you that the Bible, you just read it like a book. You don't read it as God speaking to you. You don't open up your heart. You don't give him a chance to speak to you. But when I received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's the one that inspired it. The Holy Spirit can translate the these and the thous. It's not a big deal. The Holy Spirit can interpret this. The Holy Spirit can tell you what he was saying. And I tell you, the word of God just came alive. It's like the disciples that were going on the road to Emmaus and Jesus manifested himself and walked with them and they didn't recognize him at first. And finally he was revealed to them as they took communion and they realized this was Jesus. And the moment they realized who he was, he vanished out of their sight. And then it says, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked with him by the way? And I tell you, that is an accurate description. Jeremiah used that same thing in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse nine. He said uh, that he was tired of people rejecting him. And he said, I just made a commitment. I'm not going to speak anymore in the name of the Lord. But he says, his word was like fire shut up in my bones and I couldn't forbear. I had to speak. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but the word of God literally burn on the inside of you. It just comes alive. I've seen my son raised from the dead. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen deaf ears open. I've seen people come out of wheelchairs. I've seen, I've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet, did you know the, the most exciting thing that has ever happened in my life is to have God almighty talk to me through the Bible. That is the greatest experience I've ever had in my life. A few of you know what I'm talking about. But sad to say, this is not the basic Christian philosophy. Most people compromise on this. And I tell you, if you compromise on the word of God being the word of God, then every other philosophy you have is going to be out of whack. This is the foundation. This is the plumb line. You know, I've been building some things and if you don't get the first corner right, I can guarantee every other corner is going to be out of whack. You got to get things right. And this is the foundation, the cornerstone upon which a Christian's life should be built is that the word of God is not a human book. It is not a man-made book. It was written by man, but it was as they were breathed upon by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired of God. And every truth in there is accurate. Everything in there is real and you've got to base your life upon it. And you need to make the decision in Romans chapter three, verse four, where it says, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. God's word is truth and you have to let it dominate you. And if you haven't made that as your basic philosophy, then that's the exact reason that Satan is coming to you and tempting you. You know, I don't even fight some of the temptations that some of you fight because I've just made some decisions. I know that the word of God's true. I've proven it. I've proven it thousands and thousands of times and I'm not even susceptible to some of the things that other people are because I've got uh, confidence in the word of God and Satan just can't use that on me. You need to make a decision. You need to have a philosophy that God's word is accurate. It was written to me that it is given for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that I can be perfect, thoroughly furnished. If you have a need in your life, you've got a knowledge problem. 
you don't know what the word of God says. You might be able to quote the scripture, but that scripture hasn't gotten down deep enough on the inside of you that it's changed your heart. And you need to make a commitment to the word of God. You need to commit yourself to that. You know, I had a Bible college student that, that his wife used to criticize me and says, you're just so strong on the word of God. You need to get into the spirit more. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit. You need to operate in the spirit and get away from just the word. And she was always criticizing me over this. And she had a dream and she came and told me this dream. And she said, I had a dream about you last night. And she said, it was like you landed on the beach at Normandy. And here were all of these minds. And the Lord spoke and said, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a map that tells you where all the minds are? Or would you rather hear a voice telling you, step right, take two steps forward, one left. Would you rather be led by the spirit or would you rather just be led by a map? And she thought that that was conclusive uh, testimony that, see, you can't just go by the words. You got to go by the spirit. And I said, man, that is an awesome illustration. I said, I like that because how do you know that this little voice that you're hearing is God? You know, Satan can speak to you. That's subjective. How do you know that this voice is God? But I said, this is a perfect illustration. The Bible is the map. And then the Holy Spirit speaks in your ear and gives you the right interpretation and draws this scripture. And I said, if you put the map and the voice together and judge them against each other, I said, man, you got an infallible guide. Amen. So I'm not sitting here that you just take scripture and use it without using your brain and letting the Holy Spirit illustrate things to you. There's things in the Old Testament, like for instance, in the Old Testament, you had to kill your kids if they were rebellious. One time, amen. Who said amen? (laughs) You were given one time if they rebelled against you and you corrected them. And in the second time, if they did it, you took them to the elders and you stoned them to death and killed them. So is that what we do? Well, the reason, here's the reason for that. If you just keep reading the Bible, it'll explain itself. The reason they did that is because rebellion is as witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. First Samuel chapter 15, I believe that's around verse 22. It's demonic. Rebellion is demonic. And under the Old Testament, you couldn't get delivered because Jesus hadn't come and broken Satan's dominion. So it was like a cancer. Once rebellion, once a demon got into a person, the best thing you could do was kill that person or animal because they couldn't be delivered and they would infect other people. This is why God told them to go in and kill the men, the women, the children, and the animals because these nations in uh, the land of Canaan were into bestiality. They had sex with, with animals on a regular basis. And so the people in the demon, the animals were demon possessed. And it was actually a service to humanity to go in and kill the men, the women, the children, and the animals because they were all demon possessed. It's similar to the way we treat cancer. You cut parts out, you radiate it, you kill parts of your own body in an effort to kill that cancer because there isn't a cure. So you sacrifice a part for the benefit of the whole. But now if there was a cure for cancer, 
If you could take a pill, why in the world would you go get something cut out if you had a cure for it? Now there is a cure for demon possession. It's called being born again. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so now we don't kill our children when they're rebellious. We don't kill the men, the women, and the children of people who don't believe in God because they can be delivered and set free. We now turn the other cheek instead of giving people an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the scripture explains that. So I'm not saying that you turn your brain off and just take some obscure passage. I heard a person one time that wanted to be led by God. And so he went and just grabbed one of these promises, you know, out of a deal. And he read it and it says, Judas went and hung himself. (laughs) He says, oh, that can't be God. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything should be established. So he went and got another one and it says, go and do thou likewise. (laughs) That's not the way you interpret scripture. If you're going to be one of these weirdos, it takes a scripture, you know, about picking up snakes and handling snakes when it's obvious by the context that this, you know, Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord, your God. You don't go pick up snakes just to prove something. So I'm not saying that you just, you know, turn your brain off and just go, you got to be inspired by God, but the Bible makes sense. The Bible is not inaccurate. And if you would let your heart The Holy Spirit would show you the truth of it. And this ought to be a Christian philosophy. That God's word is accurate. And if a talking snake comes to you and says, has God really said, just say yes. (laughs) End of discussion. I'm not going to discuss it with you, you snake. Whenever you're listening to something on the radio or television and they begin to start impugning the character of God's word, man, turn that stuff off. Quit listening to it. And if for some reason you can't turn it off at the moment, talk back to it. It says in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, thus saith the Lord. Notice it says, no weapon is formed against you will prosper. And then it says, and every tongue that rises against you, you shall condemn. Words are weapons. And many of us just listen to people that impugn the character of God and say things against God and come against the word of God foolishness. Every time you hear somebody say that a hundred million years ago, this happened, you ought to sit there and say, lie. (laughs) I got a place on my property that I'm putting up a sign. I've thought about doing this. I hadn't done it, but I'm, I'm going to do it. And says a hundred million years ago in this spot, absolutely nothing happened because God hadn't formed the earth yet. (laughs) Amen. But you need to counter those things. It says every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. You have to condemn it. You have to say no. I found that if somebody speaks something to me that's contrary to faith, that if I'm trying to be polite and I don't want to offend them, and so I just smile and shake my head and then I go off by myself, those, those words immediately begin to start taking root and start producing fruit in my life. But if the moment I hear something, I'll sit there and say, no, in the name of Jesus, I don't receive that. I reject this. I condemn it. Did you know what? That just stops it. I don't ever have to deal with it. 
So when I'm driving down the road and they say, it's flu season, have you gotten the flu? I'll say, no, it's not flu season for me. I condemn this. There is no such thing. No plague will come nigh my dwelling. When they start talking about, well, you know, when you get over 60, you can start. And I'll say, no, in the name of Jesus. Moses was 120 years old and his eyesight wasn't dim or his natural force abated. If Moses can do that, I can do even better with a better covenant. I'm not going to have these kind of things. And I sit there, you can ask Jamie, I talk to the radio, I talk to the television. I'd probably be better just to turn it all off. That's what I do most of the time. But if I am in, if somebody speaks something to me, I'll talk to them and say, I don't agree with that. I reject this. You need to condemn anything that comes against the accuracy of the word of God. God's word is forever settled. It's true. Jesus said, thy word is truth. John 17, 17. God's word is truth. And you ought to use that as the plumb line to compare everything else and decide what is right and wrong not traditions and doctrines of men, rudiments of the world, other things that spoil. You need to go by God's word. Amen. Amen. If what I've said is true, which it is, then you know what? Every one of us here should plunge ourselves into the word of God and start renewing our mind and finding out what God has to say, because this is not a human book. It is a God inspired book that has been preserved. People have given their life for it. Man, I've studied Tyndale and he was burned at the stake and many other people gave their life because they believed this was a God-inspired book. It wasn't a human book. And people have paid a huge price to bring this down to us and the least we could do is read it and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Amen. Father, I just pray that you take these things that I've talked about this morning and use it to minister to people and to get their heart to a place that they're confident that the word of God is you speaking to them, that they would get into it, that they would ask the Holy Spirit who wrote it to interpret it and give them revelation of it. And that, Father, it would begin to change our philosophy, our way of looking at things. I just praise you and I believe that you will take these things this morning and use this to get people into the Word of God, to get the Word of God into them. And Father, we thank you. And we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I mentioned this morning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's when the Word just came alive to me. Prior to that time, I read the Bible every day of my life from the time I got born again until I was 18, 10 years. But it was just a book. I memorized scripture, but it didn't really impact me. But when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the number one thing, the word of God came alive to me. And I have heard thousands of other people testify to the same thing. And I'd like to encourage you, if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, it's not limited to that, but that is a part of it. If you don't speak in tongues then I guarantee you, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It will revolutionize your life. The Holy Spirit will start speaking to you. He wrote this book and he will speak it to you and make it real in your life so that it'll be like Jeremiah said, it's like fire shut up in your bones. 
Amen. Is there anybody here today who does not have this baptism of the Holy Spirit? You don't speak in tongues and you'd like to receive that. If that's you, I'd like you to raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you and help you to receive. Anybody? Here's some back here. We had, I don't know how many, 63 that made it back to the room last night that came and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think there was like four that got born again. That's awesome. But praise God, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your chair and come forward and we want to help you to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It'll make a huge difference in your life. Come forward right now and let us pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I know there's a lot of people say, well, they don't preach this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues in my church. That's the reason I'm not in your church. That's the reason I have to rent a building. Not everybody believes in this, but I'm telling you, it's my testimony. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changed my life. I used to be an introvert. I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I could not do what I'm doing here today if it wasn't for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It changed my life. Jesus said, you receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And man, that's exactly what happened to me. If you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need to be up here. Somebody's saying, well, what are you going to do? We're going to pray for you and we're going to give you a free book. You got nothing to lose. I'm not, I don't have anything for you to join. We aren't taking from you. We're trying to give to you. We're trying to help you. There's no reason you shouldn't be here. Somebody's thinking, well, what if I go up there and nothing happens? Well, I can tell you this. If you don't come up here, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> you got nothing to lose. I mean, the worst thing that could happen, you go back the same as you were, but I believe that you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. There's no reason for you not to be up here. Somebody said, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, I am. You ought to take somebody who is sure. You ought to take somebody who, I tell you, changed my life. How many of you in here already speaking tongues? Would you recommend it? Yes. Amen. So if you haven't come up here yet and you don't speak in tongues, man, what does it take? Just come forward and let us pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. You know, before you can receive the Holy Spirit, the Bible says Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So you have to receive the giver before you receive his gift. If there's anybody here who's not received Jesus, if you aren't born again, if you don't know for certain that you have been changed, you need to receive salvation first. Is there anybody here who's not sure about that and you want to pray first and make sure that Jesus is your Lord? Anybody? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Anybody? Are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it, but there are just so many people who are hoping and assuming. They think, well, I'm a good person. Isn't God going to accept me? No. It's not based on your goodness. It's based on Jesus. And if you haven't made Jesus your personal Lord, it doesn't matter how good you are. Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Man, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. You need Jesus as your Savior. So are all of you sure? Awesome. 
Praise God. Everybody here is already born again. So what we're going to do, we're just going to pray a simple prayer. The Bible says that when you get born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You were created by God to have the Holy Spirit dwell in you. So God's not going to keep the Holy Spirit from you. It says in Luke eleven thirteen, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Man, he's been waiting on this day. You don't have to beg God to give you the Holy Spirit. You just have to give him the opportunity. He won't force himself upon you. He's a gentleman. So all we're going to do is just simply pray a simple prayer and just open up our lives. It's like opening up the doors of this temple and welcoming the Holy Spirit in. And I guarantee you, he's going to come flooding in. He's been looking for this day, this opportunity to gain control of your life with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And then I'm going to have our prayer ministers come up here if they'd come up now. And these people are going to stand behind you and they're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says, like in Acts chapter 8, that the apostles came and laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in other tongues. So it's biblical. It's inspired by God to have people who already have the Holy Spirit on the inside of them come and lay hands on you and release this power into you. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer and then they are going to lay hands on you and release this power into you. And then I want you to quit asking for the Holy Spirit to come. There's a time to ask, but then there's a time to believe his promise. He said he would give the Holy Spirit to you. So after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking and just start thanking God that his word is true and that what he promised is true and that you have the Holy Spirit. And don't go by how you feel. When I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing, but I guarantee you, I got the Holy Spirit. It's not a feeling that you're after. It's a promise. You just have to trust the word of God. And so after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking and just start thanking God that he gave you the Holy Spirit and that you do have this gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of speaking in tongues, regardless of what you feel like. And at that time, after they lay hands on you and you start thanking God, I want you to put your hands in the air because the Bible says that when you lift up your hands, you bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I surrender. It's your way of yielding. And so I'm going to pray for you. They're going to lay hands on you. You're going to lift your hands, start thanking God that he gave you the Holy Spirit. And then those who have the baptism of the Holy Spirit already, these people behind you, will start speaking in tongues and worshiping the Lord. I'd like to ask everybody here to do that. And because the Bible says when you speak in tongues, you're giving thanks well, 1 Corinthians 14, 17. So we are going to start thanking God for what he's doing in your life with our prayer language. And as we start speaking in tongues, then you quit thanking him in English and go to thanking him in tongues. That's powerful. It's really powerful because it bypasses your brain. The Bible says when you speak in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14, 13, your spirit's praying. You're bypassing your doubt and unbelief. It's coming out of your heart. It's powerful. I'm going to give you a book that will explain the whole thing, but here's my last instruction before we pray. Most people wait on the Holy Spirit to force them to speak in tongues. They think it's just going to be the Holy Spirit forcing it. You know, Jamie hates for me to use this illustration, but it's super descriptive. You'll know what I'm talking about. Most people think it's like when you throw up, you just can't stop it. Put your hand over your mouth and it's going to come out anyway. 
That's not the way speaking in tongues is. It says in Acts 2, 4, they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance or the inspiration. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak in tongues. He inspires you. It's like when I taught today, I believe God spoke through me, but he didn't force me to talk. It was me talking. That's the reason it came out in Texan, but it was inspired by God. You speaking in tongues, you have to speak and believe that it's inspired of God. And at first you'll have all kinds of questions. Is this really a language? And, but I promise you, after you get over the newness of it, if you just keep doing You'll find out it just flows out of you. It is inspired by God and God is going to speak through you. Isn't that awesome? The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you, Father, that they're all already born again, that they've already made a commitment to Jesus. And we believe that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit that this is what you created us for. So right now in our hearts, we just open up the doors of our temple and we welcome you, Holy Spirit. We want you to come into our life to make the word of God come alive, to give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to give us power. We want your influence in our life. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit, into our lives. We lay hands on you now and say, receive the Holy Spirit. We loose this power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to flow into your life right now. Man, here's the anointing of God coming upon you. Thank you, Jesus, for filling and controlling us with your power and with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Now, let's put your hands up and go to thanking God. Thank God that you have the Holy Spirit. Not based on a feeling, based on a promise, based on the word of God. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Those of you that know how to speak in tongues, let's begin to worship the Lord and pray in tongues. And as we pray in tongues, you just join in with us and speak. If you don't know what to say, you can say, try and say, what you hear the person behind you saying, but your tongue will be unique to you. It won't be the same as anybody else's. But once you start trying to speak and it comes out different, just keep talking. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You got to open your mouth. Hallelujah. You don't know what you're saying, but the Bible says you, you're in the spirit. You're speaking mysteries. You're bypassing the doubt and the unbelief of your brain. And you're talking to God without unbelief, without doubt. It's powerful. The Bible says you build up yourself on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. You may not understand what's happening, but I tell you, this is powerful. It's releasing some awesome, awesome things in your life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Man, just about every person that I can tell down here is speaking in tongues. I thank nearly every one of them. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. 
All right, if I could have your attention here for just a minute. Whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because He promised that He would. If you ask, He said He would give. When I first prayed and asked for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues like I said because I'd been taught against it and taught that this was all of the devil. And it took me a while to get over my fear and my confusion, but I finally continued in the Word until I got my questions answered. And I've written all of these things in a book. And I I don't think anybody ever had more fear and problems praying in tongues than I did. It took me three years. So regardless of what you've gone through, I believe that this book will help you. And I'd like to give everybody a copy of this book so you get the full benefit. This is more than what happened to you right here. I can promise you there's not a person down here that fully understands. Even if you felt something and if you felt the peace of God or the power of God, it's bigger than what you know. And you've got to understand to get the full benefit of it. So I'd really like to ask every one of you, if you would, to receive a free copy of this book. It'll only take a minute, but we've got Robert right here and he's holding up our book there that we're going to give you. And if you'd follow him, we've got a room right here and they'll give you this book. They've got people that'll answer questions. They'll pray with you. We want to help you any way we can to get the maximum benefit out of this. Amen. So it'll only take a minute, but just follow Robert. He's got his book up and he's going to take you right out here. And uh, we'd like to encourage you to go and receive. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Don't forget if you're a pastor or if you're a minister, Uh, and you would like to take advantage of this continuing education or this, I forgot what we call it, the program that Van and Regina talked about this morning. They're having a meeting in room C and D about that right now. And uh, they're only going to be here a short period of time and then they've got to go back to Atlanta. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. These are our prayer ministers. And if you need prayer for anything, if your faith has been quickened, you know, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. <clears throat> we shared a lot of scriptures. We talked about how God, you know, has breathed these words. And if your faith has been quickened, if you want somebody to agree with you for a miraculous results, these are our prayer ministers. And I want to encourage you to come right now and let someone just agree with you and lay hands on you. If you need prayer for anything, just get up out of your seat. Come right now. <coughs> We've got people standing at the aisles that'll direct you towards one of our prayer ministers and please cooperate with them. But if you need prayer, just come right now and let someone pray with you. These are awesome people down here. Praise God for all of our students, alumni, people that are here to help pray. And we're believing God for miracles. The rest of you, we're going to dismiss you. We've got a service tonight at seven o'clock tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. And then Saturday night, our services is at 6 p.m. We start an hour early so that my crew can get through an hour early and go to bed before three. So uh, remember, it's 10 in the morning and 6 p.m. tomorrow night, tonight at 7 p.m. We have CDs and DVDs of, of last night and this morning already duplicated out there. And you're welcome to get those. So please take advantage of that. Remember the ambassadors for the nations. If you would like to be a part of what they're doing in Nicaragua, they have a booth out there. So please stop by and see them. Praise the Lord. God bless you. You're dismissed.